This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. All of these things we do are really to enable storytelling. So a conference room is very much about storytelling. AV carries a lot of baggage with it in terms of the words AV. I think one of the defining characteristics of our industry is we're all very multidisciplinary and by nature we're, we're pretty good at adapting and learning new technologies and learning new things. It's just, I think we have to broaden uh, our expectation of what those technologies are. What really differentiates us from other technologists that are working purely in software is we never work purely in software. We're often working, we're always working, you know, with human physiology. Yeah, and there, there is an immense set of new challenges here, and there are no easy answers. Greetings, my name is Patrick Murray, and today on Software Defined Survival, our guest, I first met this guest while working on a rather complicated AV project at Goldman Sachs in New York City, where he was playing the role of superhero programmer for AMX's professional services. Since then, he's been a design engineer and worked as a consultant for several different companies, and he more recently circled back to Goldman Sachs, where he worked as VP of technology. He recently founded Storied Systems, and that's a company that designs system strategies and environments for storytelling at a human scale, and I'm sure he's going to tell us a lot more about what that means. Ryan Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Pat. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? Uh, oh, I, I think some people might classify me as more of a super something else other than a superhero. But <laughs> depends on your perspective. It, it depends on the project and the time. So I like to start with the origin story. Um, so how did you get started in AV? Nobody really picks that as a, uh, a major or wants to grow up being an AV. So how did you wind up in this niche business? Yeah, I, I kind of, in a weird way, almost started down that path, then bounced around and came back. I, I started off um, working, you know, summers at a TV station uh, when I was probably 13, 14, and getting to do a little bit of everything in this local cable station. I grew up in Arkansas, so it was a, you know, small city, and I got to really, you know, play with everything in the in the studio and learned how to be a TD and run cameras and all of that kind of stuff. And then I actually went to school for that. Um, and then found my way into, uh, I found my way into a home theater company and I ended up figuring out that I lived about half a mile from AMX. And when I discovered AMX, I got sent to a training class and I was like, this is a lot better than the job I have. So, um, I asked where I would apply and, uh, I gave them my resume and convinced them that I could program, which I, really could barely program, but I made it. <laughs> and that's how I ended up there. And so I spent like, uh, I think I spent around five years or so at AMX. I can confirm that because I probably looked at your LinkedIn profile more recently than you have. So uh, that's a pretty early age, 13, getting started at a TV station. How did you wind up there? Um, my father had been volunteering. My father is really into ham radio and into electronics. And so I kind of grew up with that kind of stuff around and learning to solder when I was a little kid. And, uh, even, you know, he even convinced me I needed to get my ham radio license when I was in seventh grade. Um, so 
there weren't a lot of, I don't know, there, there weren't a lot of traditional summer jobs or I never really had an interest in traditional summer jobs. And he knew somebody and they just started dropping me off for part of the day and I would work on stuff. And sometimes we would go do things like, you know, shoot weddings, shoot commercials, shoot, um, you know, business interviews, things like that. Very cool. I like that. That's come up a few times, uh, the influence of, of parents and just having electronics or something technical around as, as a youngster. And uh, that kind of sets you on a path and uh, makes things more interesting. Can you tell us about your most successful project? It doesn't have to be an AV. I'd like to talk more about AV projects, but if it's something else, that's okay. And what made it so rewarding for you? Um, I, I you know, there, <laughs> there are a lot of good projects that I've had. And I think sometimes the most successful ones in the long term were things that may have been considered a failure or a non-start in the short term, uh, just because I walked away with a different understanding. I think the most, there was one particular project that ran a little over a year, that it was my full-time project as a consultant. Uh, I worked at Diversified at the time. And it was the one that kind of became a pivotal project for me in my career in terms of we really got to run through the entire design process. We did a lot of prototyping. We did a lot of really, you know, heavy research. We worked with a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, first use technologies and, and things that were put into development for us. There was, you know, international travel. It kind of had all the parts and it was very high stress, but in the end, what we delivered was this, kind of immersive collaboration environment that, that pushed the boundaries of what you could do at the time. And that was really satisfying. Not, not so much for what we ended up delivering. I think it was a great product. Um, it was a great solution, but in the end it was that entire process. And that's what I found where I really had a passion for, for something that AV could offer, which was that, you know, applying real design thinking and getting deep down into the, the why of what are we doing? What's the real value proposition we're bringing? And how does that shape actually our delivery and our, our uh, approach? So it sounds like it comes down to the user experience is what really did it for you on that one. It's, I mean, for me, it was thinking about the user experience, but what got me excited was how we went about doing it. I think the user experience can become sometimes a little bit of a, a catchphrase and you you have to actually really every time ask what does that mean in this case um, so yeah I think it was really starting from the point of view of like okay what's the actual problem we're trying to solve um, and user experience is a key part of that but ultimately we weren't there to provide user experience we were there to provide some sort of commercial value to our client um, you know a real business solution. And I think that's really important to keep in mind sometimes. Uh, what is the actual end goal? Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, one, one is very much attached to the other because if, if people aren't happy with it, if they don't have that good experience, then uh, the commercial value could decrease as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a key part of it. You know, it's a, it's, it's key to the, to the entire mix of delivering successful projects or solutions. Yeah, you kind of hinted at this a little bit that um, uh, we look at systems and basically you turn a TV on and off. You make a video call, you do some routing, volume control. It's all very much the same. So it's easy to fall into this sense of, I know it all already. 
um, let's just take our standard cookie cutter stuff. And I kind of get the feeling that that's happening more and more in our industry, where at the same time, if you look at things like app development or even desktop app, cloud apps, even something like Netflix, that kind of an application, they're focusing more and more on on what you were saying is what is what is that goal for the end user? What are the metrics for their success? Um, is that just me, or do you have any ideas on that? No, I think I think it's true. I think what we're seeing, you know, there's a, there's a few different ways of looking at that. What we're seeing from one point of view is we're seeing sort of a, a bifurcation of the industry in the sense that there's a lot of things that are moving into a commodity space, um, either because there's value in pushing it that way, or there's, there's, you know, an opportunity to push it that way created by technologies and the virtualization and softwareification of things. Um, but then you have still bespoke kinds of solutions um, that are sometimes really esoteric and really complex uh, problems to solve. I think what we're seeing is less, you know, less of a kind of connector between those two states and those two conditions. It's, you know, you're either going to be commodity or you're going to be bespoke. And for a long time, the AV industry, especially the control side of it, kind of operated in the middle ground. And I think that middle ground is, is, is maybe disappearing to some degree. And it's either becoming a lot more complicated or a lot easier and a lot cheaper. And I think that there's there's huge value into that in that from a from a user perspective, from a client perspective. Um, you know, it, there's 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 also the sense that in many cases, what you know, the kind of experience that's delivered by some of these solutions is far better than what we used to do with far more complex bespoke solutions. So they pass the threshold of good enough, um, and 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 I think that really helps us reach this state where often, especially with you know, collaboration and communication, ubiquity is more important than quality uh, to a lot of people. They'd rather, they'd, they'd rather have it where they need it, anywhere they need it, anytime they need it, than worry about having the most perfect, you know, sound or picture. Uh, and that's maybe a little bit difficult for, uh, for an industry made up of, of audio files and video files and people who are really, you know, into, um, into the technology because of the technology and love it for what it is, it's sometimes I think hard to let go of, it, of that uh, that sort of need to cling to quality as the driver, but it's often not the driver in many cases. That's really helpful. Um, I, I like the way you put that, that uh, there's more commoditized solutions and there's more complicated bespoke solutions. And for those of us who used to live in the middle, we may be feeling a bit lost at the moment as uh, these these extremes kind of kind of grow in their separate ways. Um, well, let's jump right to the end of the podcast and ask for some advice. Do you have any ideas on what somebody who used to live in that middle space with that kind of a skill set, what uh, what things do you think they should be focusing on now? Just take like your typical AV programmer, for example. You know, I think you have to look at where you're at in the business and where you want to go. Um, there's 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 opportunity on both ends of that spectrum. And in some cases you might be able to, to work both ends of the spectrum. Uh, and certainly larger integrators are going after that and some of the smaller ones. But if you're, you know, if you really are, maybe you're a phenomenal, you know, control systems programmer, going after the more bespoke um, solutions is, is probably your best bet to actually, you know, continue to find employment. 
but that's evolving as well. And it's becoming, I think, you know, as you talked about with a lot of your guests, it's becoming more about traditional web stack technologies, um, more open programming languages, pure software solutions. So I think that, I think that understanding how modern application architectures work is, is the, the first point because there's so many design patterns that we have in AV that are becoming sort of antiquated and perhaps obsolete. And we should start applying a lot more um, design patterns that you find in the broader world. Uh, and, and that will influence our thinking. And I think that'll guide us to what we have to learn. For me, it's always been, you know, look at, like I said, I like to look at each project or each need um, from the point of view, starting with the point of view of what is the problem I have to solve? And then that kind of tells me where I have to go re-educate myself or fill in knowledge gaps and, you know, go on a Google frenzy. Um, you know, I don't, I, I think it's difficult to prescribe a formula for how you, you know, adapt to this. And in the end, um, I think one of the defining characteristics of our industry is we're all very multidisciplinary and by nature, we're, we're pretty good at adapting, um, we're pretty good at adapting and learning new technologies and learning new things. It's just, I think we have to broaden uh, our expectation of what those technologies are. Yeah. Um, anybody who's been listening to this show for some time knows that I'm all behind that. Learn more software. Uh, these modern tools are out there for us to use and take advantage of. But the flip side of that is then you need to own the solution because if you're using some kind of open source platform that's from Google, uh, you're not going to call Google up and ask for support. But, you know, of course, there are lots of online resources to help you out there too. So, yeah, there, there is an immense set of new challenges here. And um, it's, there are no easy answers. Uh, I think that's one of the most difficult things to, to learn and to communicate sometimes to stakeholders, especially when it's, you know, end user stakeholders or the people who are paying the bills is like, I understand that you think it's simple, but it's really not. And here's why it's not, you know, that education is, is, um, is both directions. We have to educate ourselves, but we also have to educate our stakeholders on why it's more difficult and why some of these dependencies are different. And uh, as you said, open source can be a huge benefit and really powerful tool set, but it comes with its own set of risks and uh, strategies to mitigate those risks. And that's something that's, I think, maybe reshaping actually how many of the businesses function within the industry. Interesting. Um, so you, you talked about how stakeholders, they kind of have this familiarity with commoditized solutions. Um, kind of what we were talking about earlier, something like Net Netflix, where they have teams of engineers making sure it looks really easy. And people have this impression, well, it's just a piece of software. Can't you guys write that? And, um, and then you're sitting there and you have to come up with a way to explain that it's, it's not that easy. There's a team of engineers who, who made it look that easy. Can you take us through um, maybe some of your go-to uh, examples or uh, conversations that you have to explain things like that to stakeholders? Yeah, it, it certainly depends on the stakeholder and whether you're trying to convince them, you know, around a technical aspect or a business aspect. Um, I think economy of scale is a good starting point. You know, if you have millions or hundreds of millions of users, then of course you can throw teams of, you know, hundreds or thousands of engineers at a problem and solve it. Uh, and that's where the commodity 
comes into play, but it's, it's, it's really a, an economy of scale thing. And when you're trying to do something that's one-off, the more complex it gets, it's definitely not going to scale up in the same way in terms of efficiencies and, 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 and value. So you, you, you have to understand, like, what are they asking for? And that's where sometimes it, it might be that they need convincing, but it also might be that we need convincing, that we need to change our strategy. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, maybe the answer is, yeah, Skype or Zoom or whatever is fine. That's all you need for this room. Don't bother putting in, you know, a $100,000 system. Um, in other cases, it might be that you have to talk about, okay, here's your real business driver. Here's your real end goal. And here are these sort of conditions in the environment. And it might be technical. I mean, within large corporations, as I've, you know, finally learned <laughs> firsthand, you know, uh, going to work for Goldman, it, the the actual boots on the ground reality of those ecosystems is is amazingly complex and the decision matrix that happens there, like as you start to think about how you solve a problem, looks nothing like you would think it looks from the outside. And it's, it's not, it's not just technology. It's not just networks. It's often, you know, well, purchasing, purchasing relationships, internal relationships and politics and things like that. So um, I think you have to kind of understand a little bit about your client or your stakeholder, I should say, and what is their, you know, what's influencing their thinking and their factors. And I mean, as I've gone through trying to con convince people that the complexity is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, it's talking about, I think I, sometimes I talk about it in terms of what's exposed and what's hidden. And sometimes you're paying to hide complexity. Netflix is, an, is a very complex delivery. And if you ever go peruse their, their uh, engineering blog, it's fascinating. All of the, uh, you know, all the effort and all the work that goes into delivering that product. They talk about, you know, the, the bitrate ladder and, and how they have tuned their compression and their delivery. That's really, really complicated, right? It only yeah. seems simple because you're paying for that simple exposure. You could do it more complicated. You know, you could, you could have more complexity exposed to you and maybe pay less or maybe pay more for the complexity and the, and the flexibility. I mean, I think I, I like to talk about it in terms of, you know, maybe not mutually exclusive things, but things that are, that are, that are different uh, factors that influence each other. And you can't have all of one or you can't have all of both, you know, and, and they come at, you know, a cost or a trade-off. Sure. You kind of uh, adjust one part of the equation and uh, it, it, it changes other things in other places. I like the way you talked about those exposed versus um, hidden complexities. I think that's an interesting way to, to start looking at things. And um, it's true. Sometimes you don't understand the entire decision chain and uh, you just need to do the best with uh, the information that you have. Can you tell me more about um, storytelling environments. Just give me an idea of, of what that means. I'm coming from an AV background. I'm used to doing training rooms, conference rooms, command and control centers, things like that. What is a storytelling environment? It's all of those things, really. Um, it's everything you just named. As I was trying, part of what I've tried to do in the last few years, um, and a lot of this is because of my role uh, at Goldman and you know being an advocate for doing things a different way. Sometimes, you know, trying to identify a vision and push that vision forward. And what I've tried to do in many cases is change the language I use to talk about um, what we do. And AV carries a lot of baggage with it in terms of the words AV. It has, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. 
but it's meant them for a long time. So regardless of whether it's good or bad, it just, it's hard to get people to think about AV in a different way sometimes. So I like to try to just disrupt the language a bit and talk about it in a different way. And, and as, as I was trying to figure out how to talk about this, I was listening to a, a manufacturer describe what they did as really being in the infrastructure business. And it just felt wrong to me. I mean, I understood what he was saying and I didn't necessarily disagree with his perspective, but it felt like the wrong way of, of talking about it. And it felt like it was undervaluing what he was, you know, what he was pitching us and what he was selling. And the more I thought about it, I began to realize, I, I started to feel like all of these things we do are really to enable storytelling. So a conference room is very much about storytelling. If you go into a conference room and talk to each other about, uh, you know, budget constraints or developing a new budget or a new project, you're telling each other stories. Um, on an auditorium is a really clear example of that because someone stands on a stage and tells a story to an audience, right? But that happens across the table as well. Command and control is very much about storytelling. It's about taking a lot of data, a lot of data in and creating narrative that then people can make command decisions on. Um, so I think really the idea that narrative runs through all of this and what we end up doing is enabling narrative um, helps to kind of uh, identify that problem space. Like I said, it, okay, actually we're here to tell a story. What kind of story are we trying to tell? Who are the storytellers? Are they telling it to each other? Is somebody listening or are they, you know, synthesizing this in real time? So I think that all of this is some sort of spectrum of storytelling and we build the systems. We deliver these tools for enabling that. Um, and, and it happens, you know, at a human scale. So it differs from, it differs from the Silicon Valley software industry, the traditional software space in terms of it being on your, your, your iPad or your iPhone or your Android phone or laptop or a computer. And that we do things that are all about human physiology and space, how we perceive sound, how we perceive uh, video and sight lines. And we care, you know, we have to worry about all of this physical positioning in space. So that's the human scale part of this is that's sort of our starting point and what really differentiates us from other technologists that are working purely in software is we never work purely in software. We're often working, we're always working, you know, with human physiology in some way. And we may not actually control, you know, a human body directly at this point, but we definitely influence how it's, you know, how it's engaging with technology. So that's, that was kind of where I started thinking about it differently. And, and, and then that helps to, I think, reshape some of the language uh, around trying to describe what we're doing and help redirect around some of these um, legacy kind of approaches. Great stuff. Um, as you know, as soon as you talked about enabling the narrative and that that's what our job is to do, it's to create a space that assists with this storytelling. My minds went immediately back to what we were talking about earlier and that's identify the problem, right? What is the real problem that you're working on? So I'm seeing kind of a feedback loop where these things really do kind of uh, support each other. So if, if uh, let's say you get a new project tomorrow, what are some practical things you would do? What are some questions you would ask yourself? Um, some steps you would take to um, to really embrace this new approach where you're saying it's it's not an AV system. It's it's a storytelling environment. It starts with a conversation um, with the client and asking, you know, what are you doing? What's the business? Um, 
I mean, clearly there's a broad spectrum of things that could walk in the door. So let's pick something fairly generic. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a given client who has a space and they say, I need a, I want to build an auditorium, right? Well, what's the purpose of that? Who, who's coming through this auditorium? How often is it going to be used? It's all the same kind of functional stuff we've always asked. I don't think that changes too much, but it's, it, it does sort of change how I think about it. And, and maybe there are a few additional questions. I really want to understand where, not just how the space is going to work, but how does it sit within the business? How does it function within the business as a whole? What's the value it brings to the bottom line of that client? Uh, is it, is it about um, managing reputation and brand? Is it about um, education? Um, is so, and those are two kind of different things, right? That's, that's something that's about communicating emotion and making emotional connections. That's what brand is. Um, and then there's the purely informational. And those are difficult sometimes to do simultaneously. Now, we may often have to build systems that do both, but they don't necessarily do that all at the same time, all the way. Um, so it's trying to understand, it starts with trying to understand what's the critical value proposition that's being supplied by this project or by this space, this environment, the system, whatever it might be. So, so you've got these different kinds of values. So let's just say it's a university, they're building a lecture hall and obviously their value is um, bringing education to students, right? That's exactly what they sell is educating people. So that would be like the critical value. And then on top of that, you may want to do some kind of branding to, uh, to introduce some of the pride, which may make the students feel better about the school they're attending and help them learn better. Does, right. does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's also, okay, if we're bringing people into an environment to get them to learn and listen and, and transmit information to them, right? The story is really about knowledge, transference of knowledge. Then we have to think about how are they being influenced by the environment so that they stay engaged, so that we are maybe helping direct their kind of cognitive load, so to speak, right? So um, we want to remove distractions, or maybe we want to provide just enough distraction where they get to task switch, because actually sometimes you learn sort of on the periphery. Um, so I think it's thinking about how you go about putting the entire thing together. And also, increasingly, as we talk about software, content is the thing that gets left out of all of these conversations, I find. So we talk about audio, video, control systems, and it kind of you know, that's the big three part of it. But content is the fundamental sort of glue that, that, or it's, it's not the glue, it's the reason it's there, right? So that's the storytelling part. And the content is super critical. As we go forward, content starts to look more and more like software. Um, it's not just PowerPoints. It's not just videos. I think software is, is ultimately where it's heading. And so that also becomes a big part of this is thinking about, okay, how is the content created? How is it navigated? How is it you know, delivered every day? What's the workflow for doing this to keep it economical, to keep it efficient, to keep it fresh? Um, and that, those, all those issues apply, whether it's a retail environment or whether it's you know, an educational space. I think it's how you, maybe how you weight them, how you privilege them, the different technologies or tools you apply to it. But ultimately, um, if we're enabling storytelling, content is a critical component of that. So that's often where I end up starting is trying to understand how the con what is the content? How are we connecting to it? And then for me, a lot of the physical stuff kind of falls into place. 
you know, the decision becomes really easy. Oh, I, I clearly I'm going to do this with, you know, this kind of display system and this kind of audio approach. Uh, and then the rest of it is really about software that sits on top and enables all these other kinds of interactions and engagements. Cool. So it sounds like um, there's more for us to do because uh, making sure the sound pressure levels are enough, the screen is big enough, all this, all those physical things that you were talking about, there's no fans whizzing away and distracting us too much. That, of course, will never go away. That's going to always be a part of that AV experience, what a professional can deliver. But um, I, I was about to ask you, okay, I get all that. What's the difference? And you answered it before I asked, and it's it's content. So if you walk down a hall, down a row of, of conference rooms with uh, glass walls, you'll see a bunch of square black devices on the wall. And those are TVs that aren't doing anything at all. And they're just kind of holes in the, in the architecture or in the interior design of the space. And uh, I guess that might be a great opportunity to, uh, to execute on what you're talking about is when I'm walking down this hall as a visitor, what do, I, what do you want to convey? What, what kind of branding do you want to show? And all of those blank screens might be an opportunity to do something like that. Sure. And, and that's also, I think, becomes a critical part of it. You're, I mean, you're, you're alluding to something that I think is, is uh, really important as many of these things go towards the commodity. I mean, even conference room systems are fairly commoditized now. You know, you just buy it, hang it on the wall and it's done. Um, as it becomes commodity, it naturally can become platform and system and you can deal with things globally. And it, we've had a long history of, you know, device control and, and, and um, device management and things like that in our industry. But thinking about content globally and thinking about it almost like a marketer would uh, or uh, uh, you know, a corporate comms person would is really valuable because as you said, those screens are there. What can we be doing with that? I mean, is there information that we could be and should be conveying? on them. Maybe there's not, and maybe you need to quiet them down. So there's, that's not a distraction, but when there's nobody in the room, that's a great opportunity to, to convey some information, or at least, you know, make sure that you're echoing the brand values of, you know, the, the, the client or the, the business that it's sitting in. Uh, but yeah, I think thinking really strategically about how the content works is, is, is really important. And even if you don't execute all of it, at least you understand, you know, where it sits, and you're set up for the next phase, um, the next phase of delivery and the, and the evolution. I think that's another key piece of this is these systems change a lot more than they used to. It used to be you would install a system and it's good for the next seven or 10 years. With software, it necessarily changes constantly. And the more cloud comes into play, it's changing on a daily or weekly basis. And, and we can't choose to not change them. We can't choose to, to ignore that. So we get forced into a faster refresh cycle. Uh, and the content, I think, you know, is, is, is in the midst of that. So I think content basically becomes a driver for all of these systems and how they age. So um, you mentioned something that I've been bringing up a lot lately with my customers, and that's in a typical AV system, we deliver version 1.0 and that's it. Call me in seven years when you want a new one. And um, you alluded to it many times, software does not operate like that. Software has this kind of feedback loop where you set goals for your customers. Are they meeting these metrics? Did they successfully make a call or did they try to make a call and fail? And then why? And with that information, you can improve a system and the IoT 
another buzzword, but it has a real value. It can allow you to update your systems, update a fleet of devices on the fly. Now, our AV, you know, if you take your typical black box AV control processor system, they're not all going to be the same. So you cannot push out an update to all of your systems, but the IOT works on a very limited scale. There's one device that does one thing. And if you can improve the functionality of that one thing, you, you are very unlikely to affect the entire system and you'll just improve it in general. And I think that's kind of missing from our mindset is this uh, constant upgrading, this constant refresh up, uh, cycle, or at least collecting data to learn how our systems are being used so we could have better conversations later on. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Life cycle management should be, you know, one of the biggest questions discussed and talked about. I think it's, I think there are other um, parallel industries or disciplines to ours where it's fairly mature, you know, software, as a discipline is pretty mature about how it manages life cycles and, and very sophisticated. But when you get into our environments, into our ecosystems, it's very nascent and it's not, it's not very elegant. And I think that's going to have to change. I, I think in many ways, probably what happens is a lot of, you know, as I said before, a lot of our old patterns, a lot of our old strategies for how we deliver things kind of disappear and we're going to adopt these other things as we adopt these other solutions will na will naturally adopt their, you know, their lifecycle management practices and, and development practices. Um, and I think that applies to a lot, a lot more than just the software too. It's how do we approach the physical systems? They need to be designed. I think a bit more like software where there's more, there are more clear abstraction points and modularity and encapsulation of function. Um, as you said, IoT kind of follows that, but we're when you break away from just IoT as a singular device and into things that are interacting with human perception, right? So televisions and monitors and speakers and cameras and you know these things that are crossing a digital perceptual threshold. How we build those and how we install them and how we how we interconnect them as part of the system. I think we have to think like software and think about the life cycle management for those uh, because they may have to iterate more quickly than they have in the past as well. Definitely. I think that's a, a great note to wrap things up on. If anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? You can reach me at ryan at story.systems. Excellent. Ryan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either or decision. You don't say I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of 
really big ideas. Uh, before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset, uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I gotta tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com, and wherever you see a sign-up button, go ahead and sign up, and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful, and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks. Thanks.